Hi, folks. Uh, welcome to uh, our Wednesday night equip. We're grateful that you guys are in the room. For those that are joining us live in person or online sometime later via our podcast, uh, thanks for being here. Today, we are going to finish our four week series on uh, spiritual gifts. And so I'm going to kind of wrap up some things. And in previous weeks, I've really only had one subject, but today I'm going to try to really kind of answer three questions. The majority of our time, we're going to spend talking about the miraculous gifts, but because this is the last of our sessions, I have a few things towards the end uh, that I want to say about the, the practical nature of gifts and how we use them uh, within the, the church and how you can find your gift and use it within our church. Um, and so I want, I want to be able to close with that. So that's, that's where we're going to close. If you are, I'll try to remember to say this at the end too, but this is especially important for the people that are joining us online next week. We will not have a live stream. Um, I'm going to be in Rwanda next week. I leave on Sunday after I preach. I'm going to be teaching. Pray for me and for Pastor James from uh, Redemption Heights, our church plant in Philly. Uh, he and I, we have a lot of teaching to do next week, starting um, Wednesday, basically from Wednesday until Monday of the following week. Uh, I'm teaching either half the day or all day long, and most of the time, different subjects every day. So uh, pray for us in that. It's great to have that much work in front of us, um, partnering with the L family in Rwanda, but it means I won't be here. We try to work in four uh, or so prayer gatherings on Wednesday nights a year, and so Pastor Brian and some of our other elders will be leading uh, in that next Wednesday, praying through our um, through our current uh, bi-monthly prayer guide. And so you can pick that up at the information desk. Now, don't be afraid to come. Sometimes we'll do prayer gatherings. We have less attendance because uh, people think somebody's going to call on them to pray. You don't, nobody's going to ask you to pray out loud. Now, we would hope that everybody would feel comfortable praying out loud with, with their friends and, and um, church family. But we recognize sometimes people aren't. So if that's you, it's okay. You can still come and pray, be a part. They're going to do this in different sections, but we'll be praying together next, next Wednesday. And then the next week on the 19th, I will be back and I'm starting another four-week series on the end, the end of all things, and really thinking about the doctrines of the end. How has the church approached this subject? Um, hopefully filling in some of the big rocks of the doctrine of the end times that when July, when I start preaching from 1 Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, I'm going to preach through both books back to back. And they both deal with the end um, quite uh, extensively. I would say in the New Testament, outside of the book of Revelation, First and Second Thessalonians contains the, the majority of what we have uh, about that subject from the New Testament, at least. So I'll be talking not only from First and Second Thessalonians, but from the whole Bible, thinking about the doctrines of the end times and how we have thought about that as the church, not our church, but how the church has thought about that throughout history um, and hopefully at least giving you some knowledge because I've not taught on this here at all. I've not really even preached to a book that addresses it very much here. And uh, I, we want to be able to answer some of those big questions for you leading into that series and that some people could listen to even if they're not coming because of our podcast, people could listen to it. Uh, and be, be ready for, I really think it's going to help us give, have a firm foundation of some end time doctrine. So that starts on the 19th. Some of you have been waiting for me to teach on that subject for six years. Well, 
you get four weeks, okay? And then all the sermons in First and Second Thessalonians that I'll preach uh, concerning uh, the end times, but, but I'll, I'll specifically address uh, a lot of maybe your burning questions. You, you won't leave here any more confident probably, <laughs> but, but I'm going to give you, because I'm going to answer every question in three or four different ways. So, because um, I I'm, I'm, don't know that the Bible gives us a real definitive answer on a lot of them. So, uh, but you'll see that when we get there. So that's, that's in two weeks. We'll be back live streaming that on the 19th. All right, let me pray for us. We'll get started with our final section on the gifts, the spirit. Father, thank you so much for your love and your goodness towards us and how we can experience you in so many ways through your word as we read, God, how you have recorded uh, through the words of man your story of redemption and we find our place in that. Uh, We thank you for how your word teaches and instructs us. We thank you, God, for the way you reveal yourself to us in a general sense, just in your world that you have created, that we can see the beauty of our God and that, that by gathering together with one another, we truly are in the presence of the Lord because your church gathered um, is another way that we know uh, that we are in the presence uh, of our Lord. And so we thank you for that. Um, I'm grateful for uh, my friends and uh, this church family that, um, that gathers here uh, faithfully week after week to hear your word preached and to hear your word taught. Um, God, would we honor and glorify you now as we finish this series on spiritual gifts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So far, up until this point, I've not said very much that's controversial in the last three weeks. You may not have agreed with everything. There are some things that some would uh, maybe take uh, exception to. Maybe my teaching on the spiritual gift of prophecy. Maybe some would have thought the spiritual gift of prophecy should be taught in the miraculous gift section. There are certainly some people that think about it that way. Um, I don't. So I've already played that hand a little bit because I taught about the spiritual gift of prophecy under teaching. Uh, Some people may want a little more defined uh, list, a little more definitive list of spiritual gifts other than just the ones that we see in Scripture, even though all of the ones that I've talked about uh, have been found in uh, the Romans 12 list, the 1 Corinthians 12 list, the Ephesians 4 list, um, the 1 Peter list. Um, I've tried to give general definitions enough to where maybe your gifting is some type of a subset or, or, or you know, uh, something within one of those others. And, and I certainly think that's viable. Some people may find that um, when I talked on multiple gifts for one Christian or even temporary gifting, and there's some people that would push back a little bit on temporary gifting and think that God in his... Um, in his uh, grace and wisdom, gifts a Christian one way for for their whole life. I just don't see that. I don't see that argued in scripture, and I certainly don't see that playing out in the life of the church. And so I'm I'm arguing a little bit subjectively there, but um, there will be people that would disagree with me, but not a lot. Well, I've saved the best for last because we're going to talk about the miraculous gifts for a while tonight, but it's not going to be our only subject, but at least for a little while. Knowing that this is where primarily the church has divided over the subjects of gifts. 
when people come to me and they say, what does this church believe about spiritual gifts? They are not asking me, do I believe that people can have more than one serving gift? Okay. They're not asking me, do I believe that spiritual gifts are permanent and then in some ways temporary? That is not the question people are asking. What people are asking me, and I do get this question at least a couple of times a year from new people that come into the life of our church. And they'll ask this question, and I know what they're asking is, they'll say, what does this church believe about spiritual gifts? And what they're asking is, what does this church believe about the miraculous gifts? Does this church regularly practice the miraculous gifts? Does this church not regularly practice the miraculous gifts? Or does this church believe that the miraculous gifts still even exist within the life of the church, even if they don't manifest themselves or not? And so sometimes I'll ask questions, but I don't want to give people the answer they want to hear. And I actually often don't give people the answer they want to hear. Uh, to that question and others, but I'll often ask questions before I answer to try to get the background of someone because I want to know not what answer I'm going to give, but really where that question's coming from so I can give them the the most complete answer. So if you've ever wondered that, maybe you're in this room, you've asked me that before, um, but maybe you're wondering that, what is this church's position on spiritual gifts? We don't have one And, and that's intentional. We do believe it's in the Baptist faith. Whatever the Baptist faith and message says about spiritual gifts, and it's not extensive what it does say other than in the teaching on the Holy Spirit and the church that the Holy Spirit does gift believers. And so it is in our core documents um, that we believe the Holy Spirit gifts believers for the building up of the body of Christ in our um, core beliefs, our six core beliefs, which are part of our church covenant here, which we've adopted as a congregation, um, we don't address spiritual gifts. So while this is in many ways, and if you're familiar with this teaching, um, which we use often here, this language we use often here, this is in many ways a second tier doctrine for some people and for many churches, meaning it's a denominational or church distinctive. You don't have to believe the same way as me to be a Christian, but if you, if you disagree, I'm, I'm so strong in my belief on this that I'm not going to go to a church that disagrees on it. We don't actually, we don't, as leadership of our church, don't elevate this doctrine to that position. We would see this more in line of a, of a third order, third tier doctrine in that you and I can disagree on these gifts and their place and function within the church, at least to a degree, and still function within the church. Now, If you're going to want to insist that everyone needs to speak in tongues, for instance, or that we need to regularly hold healing services and not just prayer services, but actually like healing services where somebody comes in and, you know, and is healing, this is, then, then that probably does rise to the level of second order uh, doctrine because we're not going to do that uh, as, as a congregation, but as far as do the miraculous gifts still exist? Are they still present, at least in some form within the local church, within the worldwide church? Um, you may find yourself on a different position than what I'm ultimately going to take here in a little while. And that's okay. We, we, we probably have differences in this within our own elder body. So amongst our eight elders of our church, 
I know there's at least a varied levels of, of, of thinking on spiritual gifts. Uh, that will definitely be true, by the way, when we get to the end time stuff, okay? <laughs> I'm going to repeat all of what I just said in two weeks. Um, but I need to say it here. I always try to, to preface con- uh, somewhat controversial doctrinal issues with uh, doctrinal triage and that we put things in first, second, and third tier, all right? But the miraculous gifts is a question. It is a question that has divided churches. It is a question that many denominations are formed around. Ours happens to not be one of them, and I'm grateful for that. I don't think we need to have a uniform position on spiritual gifts, at least as it relates to the miraculous, for us to be able to function together even amongst a local body within a certain framework. I do think we need to function within a certain framework, right, that anything far outside of either of this is, is may not find themselves comfortable here, but, but I, you can, there can be some disagreement and still be in the mainstream of Nansman river and be, be a part of the life of, of our church. So let me ask this first, what are the miraculous gifts? When I say the miraculous gifts, what am I talking about? I think there are four that are mentioned in scripture. There, there are probably more, like there are probably more teaching gifts and serving gifts, but there are four that mentioned in scripture that, that bear mentioning, um, that we do see in scripture. And so just as we saw them in scripture uh, with the teaching gifts and the serving gifts, we see the miraculous gifts in scripture. I'm gonna give a definition for them. Again, these definitions are my working definitions. Um, in, in previous weeks, I showed you where we saw this in the life of Jesus and where we saw it in the New Testament church. I'm not going to do that this week just for the sake of time because I've got some other things that, that I need to address. But let's talk about these four gifts and at least kind of where they're mentioned in scripture, kind of how we see them a little bit in the New Testament church. And then we're going to ask, should we see these or do we still see these in our churches today? So the miraculous gifts, the first one is miracles. Now that, if you think back to how I taught teaching gifts and serving gifts, it should make sense to you that miracles are the first gift mentioned because there is, there, there is within teaching and serving just this kind of general gifting that someone is in general, generally gifted to be a teacher and someone is generally gifted to be a servant in the life of the church. Well, there are some, and, and then there are some ways that the people teach the church and serve the church that don't necessarily fit well within one of the other subcategories. And the same is true we see within the New Testament as it relates to miracles. So the spiritual gift of miracles would be the God-given ability to manifest and evidence the mighty power of God. Now, again, that's really, really general, right? The God-given ability to manifest and evidence the mighty power of God. But we see miracles listed in, the, in 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, which is kind of like there's two, there's two lists of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. And um, uh, the, the second one is, is where we see the, the gift of, of miracles. Now, obviously, we see this in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus would very often... Um, perform miracles. And so the question that I think demands asking is why? What did we see Jesus, why did we see Jesus do so many miracles? Uh, we see New Testament saints, apostles doing miracles, particularly in the book of Acts, but not nearly as many as we see in the ministry of Jesus. Why do we see so much more in the, in the life of Jesus? What, did, what was the point? Now, if you were here when I taught through Luke, I spent two and a half years preaching through Luke on Sunday mornings, all of those sermons are on our website. Um, we, Luke has a really, cause Luke wrote both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And, and Luke had a really good way of weaving together the teaching ministry 
And what was often in the Gospel of Luke, the healing ministry or the miraculous ministry of Jesus. And I probably said this two dozen times during that sermon series, is that the healing ministry of Jesus is always intended to support the teaching ministry of Jesus. It was, he would often tie these healings and these teachings together in such a way that Luke would to show us like Jesus has the authority to say what he's saying. And then we see the same thing happen in the book of Acts that we see the apostles and others that as the gospel spread, miracles kind of spread with them and it lends credibility to what they are saying. It, it shows that they have the authority uh, to proclaim the gospel and, and to speak words of uh, instruction in an authoritative way to the church. Now, obviously, Jesus had that because he's God. Um, the, the miracles kind of proved that to the Jewish people and then at least to those that are willing to see it. And then the same kind of is true of the apostles as, as the church spreads, okay? So we see the manifestation and the evidence of the mighty power of God, but for a purpose, not just to fill a stadium. And it was never, in the life of Jesus, by the way, it was never, it was never healing for the sake of healing. It, it was, there was always a reason behind it. There, there's, so you can't just turn to one of the healing ministries of Jesus and say, well, look, Jesus healed people, so we ought to heal people. Well, there, there's, there's more to it. There's a lot more depth to the gospel narratives than simply Jesus did this, so I should do this, right? And, and so the, 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 the healing ministry of Jesus always kind of supported that, the, mirac the miracles that Jesus did, whether it was healing or others, all right? The second is the, the, the gift of healing, the God-given ability to bring about healing power of God into the life of the infirmed. The God-given ability to bring about the healing power of God into the life of the affirmed. I want you to note in here that when Jesus or apostles in the book of Acts heal people, it's always by the power of God. Now, that's a little easier to see with Jesus. Um, but, but we see this play out in multiple places. By the way, this is in the first Corinthians, the, the spiritual gift of healing is in first Corinthians 12 verse nine. It's in that list. Um, and we, we see um, the apostles in, in several places healing people, particularly as the gospel is being proclaimed, as they're, they're being tried and tested. Um, and it's, it's, so healing is a specific gift within the miraculous gifts, right? So we see other miraculous gifts in Acts, right? The, the earthquake that broke them out of prison, other things, but healing. When we think of the, the, heal, the, the miracles of Jesus, the miracles of the apostles, healing comes to mind quickly because it's the dominant of them, right? Jesus did natural miracles and he did, he resurrected people. That's, that's obviously one, but, but healing was, if you were to list all of the miracles of Jesus, half or more of them would, would be times that he caused the blind to see the lame to walk, the, the leper to be spot free. Right. Um, so we got to ask this question, right? Is, is healing still is that's obviously something we see. It's a gift of the spirit that we see the healing power of God uh, into the life of the infirmed in the New Testament. And it's a spiritual gift clearly listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 9 in the New Testament. But that does beg a, a question of us is what about non-miraculous healing as a gift used within the context of the local church? 
So we happen to be a church with um, a fairly high p- um, percentage, I would guess, compared to other churches, uh, of medical personnel. We have doctors that go to our church. We have nurses that go to our church, other medically trained, highly skilled people. And there are times that they may use that. Maybe we do a medical mission trip. We, um, maybe we do uh, some sort of medical clinic. Maybe we meet people's, people's needs in that way. Well, what happens when somebody uses that skill that they've honed? Because like teaching and like serving, sometimes what the Spirit does is he marries uh, and brings together gifts that people have with skills that people have and that people have been able to make better, right? The lost people have the skill to communicate and the, the Holy Spirit can marry that skill with the spiritual gift of teaching and make someone a very effective communicator of uh, the word of God. Well, the tr- same could be true of healing, we would think, right? Is that uh, a spiritual gift? I would say that in the context of healing in the New Testament, it's not. I do think someone using their spiritual gift, using the knowledge that they have acquired as it relates to um, uh, medicine, modern medicine, and using that for the glory of God within the ministry of the church is still a gift, but it's not the spiritual gift of healing. It's, it's the spiritual gift of mercy. <laughs> It's something that we've looked at already, right? It's a serving gift. It's, it's using your talents and abilities to serve others. So I do think, and we have medical people in the room and medical personnel in the room, I do think you can use your very specific knowledge and skill set with your gifting, but I don't think, because the reason I bring this up is because some churches have simply defined the spiritual gift of healing as, you know, doctors and nurses doing what they do to heal people as, as they come alongside of the local church, right, through some kind of ministry of the church. And I would say I think that's too general of an understanding of what, how the New Testament speaks about healing. Um, I do think what the New Testament is talking about when it's talking about the spiritual gift of healing is more miraculous than that, but that doesn't mean the other isn't incredibly useful in the life of the church and a way that the Holy Spirit could empower you to serve. So I would see that more as a combination of maybe the spiritual gift of knowledge and serving together uh, within the church. All right, number three, speaking in tongues. The God-given ability to pray, praise or speak in syllables not understood by the speaker. Now, most of that's Wayne Grudem's definition, which is that Bible doctrine book that's in our um, Equip Center. I, I adjusted it just a little bit. Um, I expanded it a little bit more than, than Graham has. I think I have a little bit bigger of a view on what this is than he has a little more narrow of a view uh, than, than I do. Speaking in tongues is in a couple of the lists, but it's in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Right there in the midst of spiritual gifts is the spiritual gift of, of speaking in tongues. Now, this is the one that's really interesting to us, I think, because it, if you were raised like me in a church that didn't practice speaking in tongues, we're a church that... You don't see people at least openly practicing the gift of speaking in tongues in our worship service, that, that it's somewhat foreign to us, right? Maybe you did grow up in a Pentecostal or charismatic background that you did see this happen a lot and possibly even saw some of the same abuses that Paul writes extensively in 1 Corinthians to correct. Um, but some of us haven't really seen a lot of this. And so this one kind of is, is unique to us and interesting to us. And so let me read some verses here that kind of show us 
where this definition of the, the God-given ability to pray, praise, or speak in syllables not understood by the speaker. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes about speaking in tongues. At the beginning of that passage, he says in verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, speaking to God is what? Prayer, or maybe praise. That's how we think about speaking to God. So this is prayer or praise. And notice what he says, no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So this is words that this guy is saying or words that he, or this lady is saying or words they don't understand. Now he concludes this in verse 28. He says, but there is, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now I'm going to come back to let them be silent in the church, but we got it. We have to recognize that I think this definition of speaking in tongues is a biblical definition because 1 Corinthians 14, 2 and 28 say that someone who's speaking in tongues is speaking to God. They are praying or praising God. And they don't know what they're saying. 1 Corinthians 14, 11, in the middle of, of those two verses says, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So this isn't, this isn't a strange language, a foreign language that I know. So some have sought to dismiss or, or explain, I don't want to use the word dismiss, have sought to explain the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues as this person has a gift to learn another language. And can I tell you, if there is a skill I would love to have, it's that one. I am terrible at languages. I mean, absolutely horrible. And I've traveled a lot. I've been to a lot of places, a lot of other countries where it would have come in like I would love to be able to know foreign languages and remember people's names. Like those are the two things that I wish God would give me that I don't have as far as just skills that I see other people have. I did really poorly in Greek and Hebrew. I'm, I'm a firm fan of fake it till you make it. Okay. And that's the way that I approached both Greek and Hebrew in, in my seminary courses and still some today as I preach. Here's what I figure. Even if I don't know it really well, I still know it better than most of you. So, um, I'm like, I stay one step ahead of you, okay, as it relates to Greek and Hebrew. I just wish that I knew that. But I can't, I, I don't think the scriptures give us the out to look at that as if it is simply somebody who can learn languages really, really well. Because Paul says they don't know what they're saying. I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So this is, this is a language that people don't understand. But it is a, there are times where it's not just a language between me and God, but it is a language between me and someone else. And while I may not understand it, they do. And we see this manifested in Acts. The first time we see people speak in tongues. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the disciples as they were in the upper room, um, they go out and they, they speak in tongues and what happens? The people who hear them in Acts 2, right, are amazed that they can hear in their own languages. So they, the, the Holy Spirit comes on them. They start to speak in tongues. They go out in the streets. They're proclaiming the gospel, and, and they, they stop them in Acts 2, verse 6. And they're like, why can we understand what you're saying? And you say, well, why wouldn't they? Well, it was a feast time, and people were from, there were, there were, uh, Jewish people who were not of Hebrew background, they didn't speak Hebrew, 
um, that would have been there. And they're like, wait, we can hear you. We hear you in our own language. We're in our home language. So the disciples are out there speaking and everybody could hear it. So we kind of see these two different manifestations of tongues. One is words, prayers, and praises offered to God. One is proclaiming and, and people hear it, but it's still miraculous. It's not as if the disciples all, the learn, all of a sudden learned some other kind of language um, because of the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I, don't, I believe in Acts 2, the disciples didn't know, maybe they were speaking the words that they know and somehow the Holy Spirit was translating it, or maybe they were speaking words they didn't know and the person was hearing it. So speaking in tongues certainly is this unique gift uh, that we see manifest both in the life of the New Testament church in Acts, and then Paul gives, or Paul gives instructions to in some of his epistles uh, as it relates to this, this language that's sometimes private, sometimes public, sometimes addressed to God, at least in a descriptive way in Acts 2, addressed to the population, and we're not really sure what else is, is going on there. Now, the fourth one is the interpretation of tongues. This is the God-given ability to interpret the speaking in tongues for the speaker and the congregation. This follows in the list in Acts 12, or 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10. So it follows right behind the gift of speaking in tongues in that same list. In 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul is writing about speaking in tongues, he says, if any, if any speak in tongues, let there be only two or at the most three. He's giving order to the chaos that was the church at Corinth. And he says, if anyone is to speak in tongues, let there be only two or at the most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one interpret, let them each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So what Paul is saying is that within the corporate body of the church at Corinth, there was obviously, there was a lot going on that was wrong in Corinth. But one of the things that was going wrong in Corinth is everybody was talking at the same time. And they weren't, it wasn't, speaking in tongues wasn't the only thing they were doing at the same time. People were prophesying at the same time. I mean, it, was, it was a mess. It was an unorganized mess in Corinth. And so he says, all right, slow down one at a time and don't fill your whole, that's why he says only two at the most three. Don't fill your whole service with people doing this. But if somebody has, you know, a word to speak in tongues, let them stand and do it. But if nobody there has the spiritual gift of interpretation, then this person needs to stop. And, but notice what he says, let, let them keep silent in church, in the congregation, and speak to himself and to God. So Paul kind of gives us this idea that speaking in tongues, at least there, was at times for the whole congregation, and at times was just a private language, something spoken between the speaker and God himself. Now here's the question that I know you want to know. Is this still active today or not? So let me give you the argument for not, because I do think the burden of proof is on those that say no. If you're going to say something existed during the New Testament church that no longer exists today, it's going to be your responsibility to show why that's true. Because you're the one making a claim. Okay, so I want to start with that claim. This is known as cessation, cessationism. Cessation being ended, right? Cessationism. Um, and so let's talk about the arguments for cessation. They, there's several passages of scripture that a cessationist would go to and say, okay, this is why 
we think this has, this has ended. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to just be subjective and say, well, I've never seen anybody, you know, healed. I've never seen anybody speak in tongues. So because I haven't seen it, it must not happen, right? That's very myopic, isn't it? That's very narrow. And um, I'm going to say the same thing in two weeks about people that read headlines about stuff that's happening in America and being like, oh, this must mean Jesus is coming back really soon. That's a very myopic view of the end times, all right? It's, it's, it, it, it's thinking that everything happens to, around me. And if it doesn't happen around me, then it's not actually happening, all right? Well, we can kind of be that way with spiritual gifts sometimes. Go, well, I've never seen it, so it must not be true. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a false argument, all right? So let's go to scripture. And there are godly, good people, probably some in this room, uh, who are cessationists who would say the miraculous gifts have ended and I'm gonna use one or more of these verses to show it. So I'm gonna make the argument. First comes from 1 Corinthians 13, eight through 12. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So what those who argue for the cessation of miraculous gifts, let me stop here and say, those who argue for the cessation of miraculous gifts, the argument is that at the, at, uh, when the apostles died and the New Testament canon was closed with the death of John around the turn of the, the first century into the second century, that the, new, the, the last apostle died, the last, the last of the New Testament writings were, were complete, that that's when the miraculous gifts faded away in, in the church, okay? And this is one of the, probably the primary verse that those who argue for the ending of the miraculous gifts will go to. And what they'll say is in verse 10 in 1 Corinthians 13, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And they will say the perfect is the completion of the New Testament. That when the New Testament was done, we no longer needed evidence. And remember, I think this is right. Miracles are evidence of authority. We no longer needed the evidence that someone was speaking as an apostle. We no longer needed the evidence that someone was speaking on behalf of the Lord because now it's closed. No one is doing that any longer that rises to the level of scriptural authority. And... They would say the perfect is scriptural authority. Now, I'm going to give the counter argument in a moment, but that's, that's how someone would, would use 1 Corinthians 13. And so they would say, right, prophecies and kind of an expanded version of prophecies, not what I had talked about previously, or tongues, that these things will cease and pass away. And, they, and that Paul's comparing the New Testament church to a child who's still having to figure some of these things out because they don't have the full New Testament to the church that will one day be that, that like us, that now has the full New Testament, so we don't need that. We don't need that kind of proof of authority because we have all the authority we need. That may be a convincing argument to you. Uh, the second is 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Copied the wrong thing in my notes. This is the second week in a row I've done that. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. I miss my smaller doctrine class where I used to make y'all read the scriptures. I'm going to get back to that at some point. This room's too big for that. Um, we see the, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. 
with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, this is similar to the first argument, um, but instead of being tied to the perfect, being the New Testament, it's tied to the office of the apostle. Because even, so amongst all cessationists is the idea that the office of the apostle was reserved only for those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus and were called by Jesus to be an apostle. So Paul had his eyewitness account, obviously after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus where Jesus appeared to him. But you had to have like visible call of God. That's what all those who believe the miraculous gifts have ceased ascribe to that belief. And even some continuationists ascribe to that belief. All right? By the way, I do. I, I do not believe that the office of the apostle exists any longer. Now, I recognize that there are Christian churches, and I would ascribe them Christian churches, uh, who believe the gospel, uh, who, who still believe in the function and the office of the apostle, and so they'll ordain people as apostles of the church. I just, I don't see that in what, how the New Testament treats the apostle. So, if 1 Corinthians 12, 12 is correct, right? The signs of a true apostle were formed among you and they were the signs of wonders and mighty works, then, then you can make the argument that the signs of miracles are, are directly tied to this specific group of people and this specific group of people no longer exist because there's now no one who is in that first generation who saw the Lord face to face. Number Three is Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, where the author of Hebrews writes, How shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so this, again, is similar to the the previous arguments kind of tying the two together, right? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So this is the gospel. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested by us, by those of us who heard. So again, the apostles, those of us who heard, the direct hearing, okay? And while God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So again, it was the people giving us the New Testament the apostles needed signs and wonders because it was the proof. It was what I argued for at the very beginning, that in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of the apostles, miracles, healing, speaking in tongues, these things were proof to those who were receiving it for the first time. Now that the apostles have died away, now that the New Testament is closed, we no longer need the miraculous gifts. That is the argument that most cessationists will give other than the subjective one of, well, I've just never seen it. And if I've never seen it, it must not be true, right? We want to reject that because that's not good. The question is, the, 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 and the, you may be able to find one or two other places, but these are the primary three that they'll use. The question that we have to ask is, is that really what the text is saying? Okay. Is, is the author of scripture in 1 Corinthians, Paul in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and whoever it is that wrote Hebrews, is, is, is what they're telling us the miraculous gifts have ended. Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. That's the, that's the first one, okay? And here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. In verse 10, what is the perfect? 
Because if the perfect, if Paul is saying the perfect is the New Testament, like if he's envisioning the New Testament, then we're, that's it, right? But is that what Paul is, is envisioning? I would say no. And even some really good cessations, there's a guy named um, uh, Thomas Schreiner, he's a professor at Southern Seminary, and he actually wrote a book on spiritual gifts, and in that has a whole chapter on the miraculous gifts, and he believes the miraculous gifts have ceased, like he's a cessationist, um, but still says 1 Corinthians 13 can't be used to argue it because that's not what Paul is saying. While it's the most common argument that they use, I think it's actually the weakest one because, listen, folks, it isn't perfect yet, all right? What's Paul talking about? Paul is talking about when we actually see Jesus face-to-face. He's not talking about when we get the Bible. And I believe the Bible is inerrant. I believe the Bible is the word of God. Uh, but the Bible is not seeing Jesus face-to-face. The Bible is not um, being, you know, being in our glorified bodies, present with him. And I think that's what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 13. I think a good argument for that is he says love never ends. And I certainly believe love extends because love's not a spiritual gift. Love extends all the way into, um, the, uh, into eternity with Christ. Certainly it does. But you notice he says prophecy will pass away. Tongues will pass away. Knowledge will pass away. So if we're going to say that the miraculous gift has passed away because the perfect has come, then we also need to say that knowledge has passed away. And I've already argued two weeks ago that the spiritual gift of knowledge is still active and we see that active in the life of the church. So I'm just, I'm not compelled uh, to, to believe this argument from 1 Corinthians 13. So what about the other two, 2 Corinthians 12 and Hebrews 2, which seem to tie the miraculous gifts to the apostles? And it does. It does tie the miraculous gifts to the apostles, but I don't think it makes an exclusive claim. It does say that the signs of the apostles, that that miraculous gifts, works of wonders, healings are signs of the apostles, but that we don't see that it was only the apostles that were doing these things. There were other people either directly or indirectly tied to the apostles who are in the first century doing the miraculous gifts, so much so to the point where Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians 14, 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Paul wanted regular church members to speak in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. But he wanted them to prophesy even more because he, Paul saw prophecy as far more beneficial to the church of speaking in tongues because prophecy was, people could understand it, right? So just because these were signs of the apostles doesn't mean that only the apostles used them. So I, this is the way that I do this. When I teach on what we would call tertiary or third order doctrine, and I'm gonna do this a lot in our end time stuff, I'm gonna give you a lot of options. And then I'm going to land on, okay, here's where I am. And let me tell you what I am. I am cautiously a continuationist, okay? Uh, and and I, I, use that, I use that term, I, I don't, that's probably not like unique to me. I'm sure somebody else has come up with that. I've never read somebody else say that, but I'm sure somebody else has said that. I'm somewhat cautious in it because the same exact 
abuses of the miraculous gifts that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians, we see today in some of our more charismatic um, brothers and sisters in their, <coughs> in their churches. Like we see, there, there are things that I see on TV that, and you just go, man, they really could use a study of 1 Corinthians uh, in, in their church. Now they maybe look at ours and they're like, they could really use, you know, some tongues of fire or something. And, and maybe they're, maybe they're, they have a point. Uh, but since the first century, if you look at church history, since the first century, churches have abused the miraculous gifts. It, 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 it has always kind of led to a problem. Now, just because something in its extreme is a problem doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, Right? Doesn't mean that we need to outright deny its existence. It just means that in its extreme, it's a problem. But that's why I think we ought to be very, very cautious. Okay? Now, I'm also, I'm not convinced by the biblical argument. And I said, I think the, the responsibility is on the person. If something existed in the New Testament, it, the responsibility is on the person arguing for that thing no longer being present to make their argument. And I'm just not convinced in the scriptures. Doesn't mean that I grew up in a church that practiced it. I actually grew up in a cessationist church, raised by a cessationist mom and dad, okay? And, but I, I read the scripture, and I'm just not convinced in the scriptures. And I want to be convinced in the scriptures that something has stopped. And so I go back to the Hebrews 2.4, right? Um, while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so I, I go back to that and just say gifts are given according to his will. And because they're given according to his will, that God can manifest different gifts during different periods of church history and even in different places around the globe and we just need to be open to the Lord doing something, but not trying to insist that the Lord does it. And so I'm not ever going to insist that people speak in tongues in our church. We're not going to see ourselves as a church that's lacking something because somebody doesn't do that. Sometimes people, maybe I think they're trying to be cute. I don't know. They're like, what would you do if somebody stood up and spoke in tongues in our church? I would say, that's easy, right? I would go to 1 Corinthians and say, all right, Bible says somebody needs to interpret. And if not, you need to sit down. Now, the better question that nobody asks is, what happens if somebody stands up and interprets, Pastor? <laughs> well, we'll jump off that bridge when we come to it, okay? But I, I'm, not, I'm not willing to say because I've never experienced something and I don't see this, I don't buy the argument in Scripture that it's gone away. Now, Acts is full of the miraculous gifts. It's the, new, it's the story of the New Testament. It's full of speaking in tongues. Every time, by the way, the Holy Spirit comes upon a new, new group of people. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, he didn't come on everybody. He came to this one little group of people, and then the gospel spreads to uh, other Jews outside of Jerusalem. It spreads to the disciples of John. It spreads to the Gentiles. And every time that happens, they speak in tongues. It was a sign that it was happening. Then it continued in some of the Gentile churches, obviously, because it's happening in, um, it, during, the, during the time of uh, first and second Corinthians. 
So Acts, while it's not normative or prescriptive, meaning the book of Acts, what's being described there, we're not being told to do those things. It does show us that the miraculous gifts most often takes place on the gospel frontier. So if you were to ask me as someone who would say, I am a cautious continuationist, where do I think the the miraculous gifts will show up? I would say it is on the mission field far more than it is here. And just in my own life, I'm just be honest with you, in my own life, there's, I have anecdotal evidence that that is true. I've been on the mission field a lot. I've been around a lot of missionaries. I've been around enough missionaries enough times that they've been comfortable with me to share stories because I want to tell you, particularly our Southern Baptist missionaries or conservative missionaries overseas, like they're really cautious with who they share their, like when they come and just talk at church, they're giving you one level. There's another level. There's other things these people have seen. And, and, and you, get, you get to know them well enough and they'll share things with you and you go, okay. Um, folks, and I'll just give you mine. Before I came to this church, I used to go to Nigeria. It's always been Africa for me. I love going to Africa. I used to go to Nigeria a lot, about the same amount of time that I was going to West Africa here, a couple of times a year. And um, we were seeing the gospel move in one particular area a lot. We were seeing, we were sending teams over. We were seeing 20, 30, 40, 50 people saved, profess faith in Christ. I mean, it, we just had this period of about a year and a half where there was a lot of that happening. And um, there was a team that went over in, um, I don't remember, at one point of the year, I had a really good friend that went and we were praying for people. We actually brought glasses with us. We, almost, that was, we brought reading glasses with us. They didn't, and out in the bush, they didn't have access to stuff like that. And this was big for people. And so people would come, they kind of heard that we were doing that. Every time we would show up, people would ask us for glasses. And, um, and there was a guy that was blind. I mean, he didn't need glasses. He was blind, could not see. And we would pray. I mean, just like we would do now. If somebody came and said, well, you pray for me, I'll pray God to heal people. Right? I don't claim to have the spiritual gift of healing. We pray God. And that team prayed up probably for a hundred people that, the week that they were there. But they sat with this blind man for a long time and prayed for him. Well, we got a call from one of our local partners a couple of weeks later, and they said, the blind man can see. The blind man can see. Yeah, the guy they prayed for that was blind, like he, that man can, we went back to that village, the guy can see. Well, I was on the next team over. Well, what do you think I'm going to do? Like the first stop, right? Take me to the blind man. Because your pastors, I think I said it last week. I'm a realist, folks. Like, I, okay, I believe God can do that. I believe every miracle Jesus did was a real miracle. I believe God can do this. Take me to the blind man. And they did. And we walk up to this guy's hut. We sit down. He's, the, he's old. He's patriarch of the family. And we said, where is he? He said, he's out in the field. Okay. This wasn't uncommon, but for a blind man. And we sat there 10, 15 minutes. The next thing you know, this old man's walking across the field. And I said, is that him? That's him. I looked at his son, you know, and I said, he was blind. Could not see at all. And here's this man walking across this field by himself. Now, folks, that's anecdotal, okay? Don't take that as, I mean, you know, that doesn't rise to the level of the authority of Scripture. But I've seen that with my eyes. That was a big moment for me where I'm in that moment, I'm like, okay, you know, 
but it was in this gospel frontier kind of situation. You hear those same kind of stories from, from our missionaries. So, so I'm at least open. I think we need to be open to the possibility of God working in that way throughout different periods of time in the New Testament church, simply because I'm just not convinced by the, by the argument. If you are convinced by the cessationist argument, it's fine. Be convinced by it. We can all still go to the same church because we do not raise any of this to, to, that, to that level, okay? So now that I've only left myself nine minutes, how do I find my spiritual gift? Because maybe you sat through the last several weeks and you're like, I just don't know. What in the world am I supposed to do? How, do? how do I find it? Well, it shouldn't be a mystery. If you go back to 1 Peter 4.10, now I want all, that's, I did it again. What did I do? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves the strength of God. As each one has used a gift, use it to serve one another. You notice he doesn't say, go, you know, high on the mountain and pray and try to determine what your spiritual gift is. Don't take some, you know, 300 question spiritual gift survey so you can know what your spiritual gift is. That Peter just assumes people know what their spiritual gift is. So it shouldn't be a mystery. Like anytime Paul, Peter, the New Testament authors talk about spiritual gifts, people just know. It's just an assumption that people know what it is. So you should know yours. And you say, well, that doesn't help me very much, preacher, because I don't know what mine is. Okay, so what do you do? Well, go try something. Really, go try something. Go serve. Go ask to be an apprentice. Not, and we're not going to give you a small group if you've never taught before, but we got a pipeline. We have a system. Ask to be an apprentice. If you think you may have the spiritual gift of teaching, come to one of the elders and say, I, I would like to, to talk about being an apprentice in somebody's small group. Or just go to your small group leader and say, can I, because we've equipped our small group leaders to apprentice. Every one of them has been through the training of knowing how to identify and, and bring along someone we could do the training again if we forgot how to bring along someone, you know, to, to replicate what you do. So it really is just trial and error. And you may try something and be like, that's not for me at all. And that's great. That'd be fine. You'll find something else. But it's not going to just, it's like, I almost said, it's not going to just miraculously appear. And here I've talked about the miraculous gifts, right? It might, but probably you're going to learn this because you go do something and all of a sudden it just kind of clicks. Now it doesn't mean you're going to be great at it the first time, Okay. Remember, spiritual gifts, even though they are gifts of the Spirit, are honed and they're sharpened. Another thing you can do, and I think we leave this out so often, talk to people who you know that have seen you in the context of Christian community. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, I can almost guarantee you, you've never looked at somebody in your small group and said, what do you think my spiritual gift is? You know something else I could guarantee you? If you would do that, they will probably tell you and be right. Because other people are really good. Like people are just good at knowing. I look out in this room. I, I can't tell you everybody's spiritual gift in this room. Because I don't know, uh, you know, our church is big, okay? I mean, it, there's 300 and something people that are members of this church, active members of this church. Because we don't have people that aren't active members of this church. We're covenant membership here, right? So. I know everybody that's a member of this church. I know a lot of them very well. And I know a lot of you really well. And I look out in this room and I can just name spiritual gifts in this room. 
Because I, I see how the, I see how God has worked in you. And I'm not as close to you as the people in your small group are. So those people probably definitely know. Ask your spouse. A- ask your, uh, you know, you got an accountability partner. You got somebody you study the scripture with. You got somebody you sit on the same pew with when it's not COVID. Like you got somebody. Like ask people. What do you think it is? Talk to people. They'll help you. And when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I really see this in you, don't just shut it down. But actually take that as, you know, a prophetic word from the Lord. Not, hey, God told me to tell you this, but hey, you, you really shine when you're encouraging people. You're really, you're, you're really great in our class with with you know, pieces of knowledge from scripture. You know where things are in the scriptures. You're really good when somebody's hurting and, and organizing things, right? Like listen to people and put those things together. I'm not saying spiritual gift profiles, which by the way, if you wanna go down, I'm not giving you one. If you wanna go download a spiritual gift profile, you can find about 900 of them online, okay? And you take these little tests, but most likely what it's gonna do is tell you what you like, not what you're gifted in. And hopefully you'll end up liking the thing that you, you're gifted in. But I, I, and I know I shared or, you know, a couple of weeks ago about not liking public speaking. I was terrified of public speaking. It scared me to death to do something like this. It doesn't anymore. I love it. Love it. I love Sunday morning. I love Wednesday night. It's not the only part of my job I love, but I love this part of my job. I, I love, I mean, I'm, look. Some of you heard me say at the beginning, I'm going to Rwanda. I'm going to teach every day, in some cases, all day on different subjects. And you're like, oh, there's no way in the world I'd go and do that. I will never go to Rwanda with you. We have other things you could do in Africa, okay? Sometimes you just go and watch me do it, okay? Um, but I love it. I look forward to it. And I'd be exhausting. I'll be tired at the end of the day. So, so talk to people. Try stuff out. And if that doesn't work, try something else. You'll find it. It's not you're mystifying this more than you need to. Let me end with this. I get three minutes. How do I strengthen my spiritual gifts? Because most of you probably know what it is. You probably, you probably know what, what God, either primary gifts, even secondary gifts, the way that this works out. You've probably identified these. As I was teaching through those things, you're like, oh yeah, that's me. Most of you, nine out of 10, probably had that moment. Oh yeah, that's me. But maybe you've flatlined in it. Maybe you've even allowed it to go down a little bit. You know, you've, you've thought maybe I can retire, not do it as much. So how do you strengthen it? You're challenged now, right? How do, how do I strengthen this? few things. First, pray. Pray that God would strengthen it in you. These are spiritual gifts. And so see them as spiritual. See the spiritual side of it. I compared in the first week this spiritual gifts and sanctification, right? There's a, there's, there's a God's work and there's our work in both of those things. And uh, using it is another way. Right? So go to God, pray, and then use it and use it regularly. If you use your spiritual gift, if you have the spiritual gift of teaching and you use it one time a year because you teach, you know, third graders at VBS, like it's great. I'm glad you teach third graders at VBS. Don't stop. We need you. But if that's the only time you use the spiritual gift of teaching, you're probably not great at it. Right? Because you just didn't use it. We hone our gifts by using our gifts. And we hone our gifts by using our gifts, this is the third one, in new ways. Look for new ways to use it. Be stretched a little bit. Don't, don't be complacent in, well, this is how I use my gift. 
Be, be willing to be stretched in it because the stretching of it's going to make you better at it. The, the, the utilizing that, that gift in a, in a different context is, is really going to make you um, a, a better whatever it is that you are. Be around others. This is the fourth one. Be around others who have the same gift and learn from them. This is why we have, you know, an apprentice program in our small groups where people who feel like they have the spiritual gift of teaching come alongside of, of a more seasoned teacher, at least for a season. Sometimes that season doesn't have to last long. Um, but, but it's so people can, people can learn how we do things and they can, they can hone that gift a little bit by watching and, and experiencing what other people do. That does, doesn't just go for teaching. Like you see somebody else doing something in the church. Like if you have the spiritual gift of hospitality, just, and you think, man, I think I could be a part of our first impressions team, you know, our connect ministry that's at the desk and there's the doors, right? Like we got a guy, Chris, Chris O'Neill's our deacon for that. Go to Chris and be like, can I watch one of your people? Can I just stand? Like, I'm not going to be in the way. I just want to stand back for a month and watch. And maybe after watching, I'll be like, hey, that's what I want to do. I want to volunteer. I want to be a part of that, right? We could do that in, in any number of ministries. Watch other people. And then this one, this is my last one. This one may seem odd to you, but it's something I do all the time. It's something I'm actually doing in a, in a real, real way right now and getting a degree in it is read about your gifts that others have written about or that others maybe have had. Read biographies of people that served the church, that were great evangelists. Like if you have, if you have a, um, if you feel like you have the spiritual gift of evangelism, right? There's, there's biographies of people who are great evangelists and not preacher evangelists like Billy Graham, but just people that were great at sharing their faith. Or there's books that train you how to share in your faith. There's books that train you how to do church administration. There's books that train you how to be um, hospitable, you know? We try to offer some of those sometimes in, in as smaller equipped classes. We've taught one on hospitality. We've taught one on giving. We, we teach these things sometimes because it helps hone people with those spiritual gifts. So actually do some research. Remember, you, you contribute to this. So don't just look and say, well, you know, I'm not as good of a servant. I'm not as good of a teacher as somebody else is. I'm, I'm going to be fine. You know, like, get better. Do your part. Pray. That's why I started there. Pray. God, make me better at this. Um, but learn from people. Sharpen it. Always, always, always be looking to, to use your gift. This is why we wanted to teach this four-week session on, on spiritual gifts. Because I just want to encourage you as, as the congregation. Uh, we need you. Man. Need you. So this whole thing started, right? Was me teaching through Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and saying, we need the body. We need the body to be the body. So be the body and um, utilize your gifts. We're only here for a limited time. Um, use, use the days that we have um, to serve God and to accomplish his mission through our church as best you can as we seek to make disciples together. All right? Next week, be back praying together. So a few of our pastors will be leading us through that. And then in two weeks, I'm, uh, I'm going to be on to um, the end. I think that's what I'm calling it, the end. And we will, uh, we will explore that. And if you didn't get mad at me today over this, somebody will definitely get mad at me over that. You just, you just wait. It's going to be fun. When people say, why don't you preach through Revelation? I'm like, because you won't like what I say. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not always the case.
I'm going to be, I'm very gracious when it comes to, I think I showed that here. I hope I did. I'm very gracious over second, third level doctrinal disagreements because I'm, I'm going to get to heaven and find out I'm wrong on some of them. And so will, so will you. All right, so, all right, let me pray for us. God, thank you that you gifted your church. Uh, help us to uh, desire uh, more of your gifting in our lives. Would you continue to pour out your spirit on us? God, if there's something we're missing, help us to see it. Use us, we pray, God, for your mission here at, at this church, around the world, as we seek to make disciples, we pray. Help somebody in here that says, I just don't know what my gift is. Help them to, uh, to find out and to use it for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you to those that joined us online. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Thanks for being here, folks. God bless.